Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian Nord. This is episode 121. Staying in your lane. Look, I believe that people should essentially do what they feel is right. Obviously, whatever they want within the bounds of the law. Uh, you're going to upset some people. You're If you're going to be yourself, you, you know, at times you're maybe going to get some friends and enemies along the way, right? Um, also, some people who don't stay in their lane, they stick their noses in other people's business. They ask for things that they don't really have a right to ask for. Uh, there are people who basically needed to just be shoved out of their position so that someone else could take the spot and make things better. That's a sacking, really. I'm going to get through a bunch of different diverse topics here, but most of them have to do with people getting a little bit outside of the zone that they are expected to be in. Let's start with Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, this has been basically everyone's number one topic for a week, and I wanted to start with it more or less because I have a take on it that, well, I think it's kind of funny, but also I'm just not as upset as a lot of other people are about Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, did he stay in his lane here? (laughs) When Man United are beating Spurs 2-0 in probably their best performance of the season, they were actually, I'd say, almost equally good against Chelsea, but Chelsea were better than Spurs. So Man United are winning 2-0, and Cristiano Ronaldo just leaves with still time on the clock and... Look, a lot of people were very upset. They were like, look, Sir Alex Ferguson, during his reign, none of this would have flown because no player was bigger than the club in those days, right? And any player who thought that they were getting there, Ferguson would push him out. So naturally, Ronaldo is above his station here. He needs to be corrected. Okay. Get all the ex-pros pundits, everyone calling this just disgraceful behavior, and how on earth could a 37-year-old man who's been a pro for this long do this? Well, just recently I was on the Footy Misfits podcast and we covered this topic, and I had a little hot take about it that I'll share with you now. Basically, I look at Cristiano Ronaldo and I compare him in a hip-hop term to Kanye West, okay? This is a you know, goat status level person, right? He he has been a performer in this arena, consistently just just breaking records, right? For over a decade and a half. It's very Kanye, right? Then here's where they get even similar. Every now and again, they will do something pretty selfish and daft. Either they'll say something or or act in some way that makes everyone go, what are you doing? Like, how old are you? What like what is this right now? We'll hammer them for it. We'll castigate them for it. They'll kind of disappear and release a little statement that's not really an apology. I mean, I've never really seen Kanye West full-blown apologize. Neither have I seen Cristiano Ronaldo do that, right? They kind of just more or less fade off and let the storm quiet down. And then, of course, what do they do? Well, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo comes back, scores bicycle kicks, breaks records, you know, reignites the conversation that who's better of all time, he or Messi or are they even better than Maradona? And the conversation reignites and everyone's like, Ronaldo's a genius. Same thing happens every time Kanye goes into obscurity and then releases an album. Everyone's like, what? Kanye. So it's kind of similar, right? There is something about the way <laughs> these two go that at a certain point, why are we expecting different? Cristiano Ronaldo is who he is for a reason, 
okay? He has always kind of acted up in certain ways that to a lot of people just seem immature. If you're Cristiano Ronaldo and you look at what you've achieved in your life and everything, you probably go, I don't know why these people keep criticizing me. That's probably sort of how he looks at it. And why do these people have a right to criticize me? Well, of course they have a right. You have a right to not listen and do what you're going to do. And we've seen that he just does this for 15 years. Why are we expecting different? Let's just at least embrace the fact that it's only going to be a couple more years. And then we just won't be talking about this really ever again. Right? I mean, Ronaldo, once he hangs up the boots, these conversations, they won't really come up until he gets into the managerial game and starts Mourinhoing and, you know. But either way, Cristiano Ronaldo should have stayed in his lane, should have stayed on the bench, should have been available to play. Instead, he left, acted like a buffoon. But what do we expect? This is CR7. This is part of the reason he has also been so interesting to follow for the last 15 years. He's made the game fun. So away from that topic, because I don't really think there's much else that needs to be covered. I just think it was funny to to get into that for a second. So staying in your lane. The Ballon d'Or was officially announced. Karim Benzema won it. No surprises, right? No one was really surprised about that one. And no one really had any complaints about it. But the one person who seemed to throw just this little pinch of salt, a little a little edge, some doubt into the whole thing, is teammate of Karim Benzema, Thibaut Courtois. So, look, Thibaut Courtois, he's an outspoken goalkeeper ever since he's really re-cemented his place at the top of the pile of goalkeepers. He's also made it clear to a lot of people that they slept on him for a while. After they won the Champions League, he said, essentially, there was a list that he had found, I think it was in 442 Magazine, of top 10 goalkeepers, and he wasn't in it. And he was just like, that's disrespect. Put some respect on my name. Wins the Champions League and just kind of lets everyone know, hey, you know, y'all forget about me all the time. Fair. A little bit outside of your lane, Thibaut Courtois is saying that it's kind of unfair that no goalkeeper will ever win this award and that no matter how well you play, you will never be considered for it. Okay. There is a reason why goalkeepers probably will never win this award. Okay. They do not actually participate in the action necessarily enough to warrant that. And this is nothing against goalkeepers. It's one of the most important positions on the field and probably one of the most difficult to play. However, scoring goals is the most difficult thing to do in the game. And there's a reason why the highest paid players are the ones that really, that bang in the goals and that create the goals. That's That's been true for, since the beginning of the game, right? Yes, every now and again you have central defenders who, like Virgil van Dijk, who get paid the big bucks because they are so specialized at what they do. And then you've got goalkeepers who every now and again pop up who are very different from the rest. I'd say Manuel Neuer is probably the only goalkeeper that I can remember who is Ballon d'Or worthy because he revolutionized the position. And some of the things he was doing were genuinely affecting the way his teams played. like And, and not just saving shots and clearing balls, but the way he distributed, the way he cleaned up from the back... Manuel Neuer changed the position. And so maybe there's a case for him that at some point in his career, he was Ballon d'Or worthy. <clears throat> Courtois, I mean, great goalkeeper, but I, I, I don't think that a goalkeeper should 
go and say, hey, why don't we ever win this award? To me, it, it's it's a little bit of a, dude, stay in your lane, you're a goalkeeper. Like, allow the players that everyone wants to watch, the ones that score goals, the ones that make beautiful things happen, allow them to win it. I'm sorry you're a goalkeeper in a sense. It's like you get to be in the poster on the losing side. In all the posters, you're on the losing side. Someone's scoring a goal and celebrating and you're on the floor. But as a goalkeeper, you get to be a hero sometimes as well. You get your love yashin, but I don't think you get the banal d'or. So thought that was an interesting one. <clears throat> it was kind of interesting also some of the awards, the uh, women's award was given to Alexia Puteas, who, look, not going to not gonna argue she's not the best female on the planet. I just, just, I'm not going to argue that. But this is a player who tore her ACL and was not able to participate for Spain at the Euros. Her Barcelona also lost in the Champions League final to uh, Olympique Lyonnais. So she played half of the year and did not take home any silverware or have an impact in silverware being brought home aside from La Liga, right? So, yeah, very interesting that she won it. But also, who else, right? Beth Mead, Sam Kerr, good picks, I think. Um Actually, there really isn't a stay-in-your-lane topic to this. I kind of just wanted to mention that piece of it. The Copa Trophy as well for the young players, Gavi winning it. I, I found it interesting that Bukayo Saka was something like eighth in the uh, in the rankings, but uh, it was funny because a lot of people were clamoring for Aurelien Chouameni to win the award, but the problem is he's 22, so apparently he's too old for it. So that was kind of an interesting one. All right, let's move on to the Women's World Cup draw. Yeah. Nice big quick change of pace. It's kind of interesting. There's still three spots that need to be filled. There are uh, playoffs that are going to be happening between different confederations and different teams. Ten teams will go into a little playoff tournament. Three will come out and go into the World Cup. So right now in Group A, we have hosts, co-hosts, New Zealand with Norway, the Philippines, and Switzerland. Uh, I expect Norway to have a much better World Cup than their Euros. They fired their coach. I think that... The pain that they felt in those Euros, especially their 8-0 loss to England, will reinvigorate them. So, you know what? I was high on Norway before the Euros. I'm not going to change my mind now. They still have top players. The squad barely has changed. And so that means that they're going to want some sort of redemption. So I think Norway will probably win that group, actually. And look, I always hope for the hosts. So New Zealand, it would be nice if they advanced as well. Switzerland are probably the next best team in that group. So they'll need they'll need to do some work there. Not sure what to expect from the Philippines, but hopefully they just don't get thrashed every game. And I, 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 I'll say that about a few other teams. Group B, Australia, Ireland, Nigeria, Canada. That's a tough group because Nigeria are probably the top side in, in Africa. Ireland, there's Republic of Ireland, there's not really a whole lot we can say yet. Um, we don't really know much about them. Australia, they're the powerful hosts. Sam Kerr leading the line. I imagine they'll do well in this World Cup. They'll get out of the group stage. I think that they'll get to the quarters, but then it depends on who they play after that. Nigeria, Canada, that'll be a good fight between the two of them for who can take second spot, in my opinion. But Canada's also the Olympic uh, medal holders, gold medal holders. So you you can't count them out as possible group winners. Group C, Spain, Costa Rica, Zambia, and Japan. Japan, obviously, having won a World Cup already, already, they have to be considered in the top two. Spain, 
group favorites. Come on. I mean, I also think if they have their full squad, World Cup favorites. I, I Spain are the team that I feel play the best football. They were the only team that really made England truly uncomfortable at the Euros, even outplayed them. So that's what I think. Moving on to Group D, speaking of England, they are in with Denmark, China, and the Group B playoff winner. So there's Group B playoff winner will be Chile versus Senegal and Haiti, or Chile will meet the winner of Senegal versus Haiti. Those two teams will play each other for a spot in the group with England and Denmark and China. China was once a force in women's football and have really dropped off since since the late '90s, early 2000s, which is it's kind of interesting. It, it's funny there was uh, the World Cup was meant to be hosted in China, I believe, in 2003, and that's when SARS broke out. And so the World Cup was actually moved to the United States that year. And strangely enough, I don't think the Chinese football has ever really gotten back to the level since then. And I don't know what the ties are, what the impact is there. That's a podcast episode in itself. Maybe I can find someone who has actually done the research on this. Someone's written a book on this maybe, right? All right, Group E, U.S. Women's National Team. They have Vietnam, the Netherlands, and the playoff Group A winner, which... I would imagine will be Portugal. They they are seated in the final against either Cameroon or Thailand. Portugal were outstanding at the Euros. They did play against the Netherlands. They were down 2-0, brought it back to 2-2, and then Van de Donk scored an absolute banger to win the game for the Netherlands. The Netherlands also played against the United States in the World Cup final in 2019. These two teams are going to be very different, so it's not exactly a rematch. That's what Vlatko Andonovsky, the women's national team coach, said. And then you've got Vietnam who, well, hopefully they don't just reinsert themselves as the Thailand from the last World Cup because the United States beat Thailand 13-0 in the opening game. So I really hope that Vietnam don't suffer the same thing. I, as I said, I'm very excited to see what Portugal can do. And the U.S. women's national team are in a very strange place. I think that everyone's expecting them to be a, a little more further along in their process in terms of being ready for the tournament, but also... Look, it, it, this team's always stacked, always talented. And if they have the right formula going in, they should be quite strong. France in Group F with Jamaica, Brazil, and the Group C playoff winner. Group C has four teams. as Chinese Taipei will play against Paraguay. Papua New Guinea will play against Panama. Look, to be honest, all very small uh, FAs in the women's game. So not much is going to shake. These, aren't, these teams aren't going to come in and shake up the group the way Portugal might in Group E. I think it'll be France and Brazil who advance to the next round. Jamaica, they could pose some problems to those teams in the games, but I don't I, I don't see them getting out of the group. Group G, Sweden, South Africa, Italy, and Argentina. This should be a lot of fun, especially Italy-Argentina. I love that. That should be a great matchup. But Sweden are the top team in this group. And then, yeah, Italy versus Argentina I think will be really the toss-up for who finishes second. South Africa still building their program, still getting better, but I just don't quite think able to get out of the group stage in this group. Considering Italy had a disappointing Euros, they're going to want to correct that as well. Group H, powerhouses, Germany will play against Morocco, Colombia, and South Korea. South Korea are a good side. Colombia are also a good side. I've seen them play against the United States and was pretty impressed with them. And I have no idea what to expect from Morocco, so that should be really fun. But Germany, I imagine, will walk through this group We'll make it to the semifinal, and then we'll see what happens after that. So this will be a good tournament. It's going to be 
in Australia, in New Zealand. I think it's going to be a, a lot of fun for the women's game. And look, hopefully as a competition and as an event, it rolls out smoothly. I've been wanting to go. I'm not quite sure if I'm going to be able to make it. I've never been to Australia or New Zealand, and I've dreamt about going forever. So this is a great opportunity and excuse. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to put it together. We'll see. All right, I'm going to close out with the final bit of staying in your lane. And this is a little bit more controversial. I'm, I'm, I'm really not trying to ruffle any feathers here, but I do think there is an important conversation that needs to happen that for me has been brewing for a little while now. This all has to do with the World Cup in Qatar, right? We hear pretty much more about the fact the human rights abuses, LGBT rights. This is what we hear about a lot. Um, the migrant workers, building a stadiums. These are things that we've been hearing about pretty much since the World Cup was awarded, right? It started out with just all the bribery tales. And then once the stadium started being built, we started hearing about a whole a host of other problems. Have things improved? Yes. There was this thing called the Kafala program, which meant that employers in Qatar could refuse any of their employees and workers the right to actually leave the country. So what was happening is people were coming into Qatar to work to, for, on infrastructure for the World Cup, and they had their documentation taken away, passport, all this stuff. So they couldn't leave. Now, this is not just applied to migrant workers, right? There's also a certain level of this that goes up through you know, businesses where if you work for a Qatari bank, you know, potentially they can keep you there where you cannot leave the country if you work for them. This system has been dismantled over the period of time since the World Cup bid was announced. And that's probably a good thing, especially if Qatar wants to be a country that invites business and, and commerce and wants to grow in a scale that once the World Cup leaves, they're not just a tiny little patch of desert on the Arabian Peninsula. And so I think that's all good. And they've done some good things to improve my migrant worker uh, conditions and pay and everything. So those are positive developments. My biggest issue comes with the LGBT rights issue because I do understand that they have laws that in the West we don't really consider to be very humane. Okay, that, that, that I understand. Here is the law in Qatar. Whoever copulates with a male over 16 years of age without compulsion, duress, or ruse shall be punished with imprisonment for up to seven years. Same penalty shall apply to the male for his consent. Whoever commits the following offenses shall be punished with imprisonment for a term of no less than one year and no more than three years. Leading, instigating, or seducing a male by in any way to commit sodomy or dissipation including or seducing a male or female in any way to commit illegal or immoral actions. Okay, this is from, that, that is literally from the Qatari Penal Code. So basically it's punishable for up to seven years and that, this, is, this is the law in a Muslim country. And this is a Muslim country. So this is not a secular country like the United States where we have you know freedom of religion and therefore every religion sort of exists, and so therefore we don't base our laws on religions because religions are different. This is a Muslim country. The laws are based on Islam as well, okay? And, and the thing about Muslim countries is they all have a very wide range of the way the Quran affects politics and policy. This is 
This is humanity. It's very diverse in the way different countries do things. Now, if it's diverse in the way countries do things, and we all have our own lane that we've created in the way we run our societies, isn't it probably good to stay in your lane? It's not a good look for the whole colonialism tag that the West has that there is this pressure being put on the Qatari government to really alter the way they view LGBT issues. Now, do we do we hope that people can go to the World Cup if you're gay, if you're lesbian, if you anywhere on that LGBTQ spectrum, if you're anywhere in there, can you feel safe going to the World Cup? That's the big question, right? Can you feel safe? What they have said, the Qatari government has said, is that yes, you can feel safe. Absolutely. And I'm actually going to read you a quote here of what has been said. Um, because the criticism Qatar has been going under has now erupted to the point where basically they're sick and tired of it. The ruling emir actually came out and said that there's a campaign to an unprecedented campaign to try and tarnish the country, basically. So he said the campaign tends to continue and expand to include fabrications and double standards that were so ferocious that has unfortunately prompted many people to question the real reasons and motives. Um, he said... This is a great test for a country the size of Qatar that impresses the whole world with what it has already achieved and is achieving. So he's really, really frustrated that pressure has been mounting on Qatar over the criminalization of homosexuality. And basically the Qataris are saying, look, you can come here, but like respect us. Nasser Al-Qatar, he's the chief executive of the tournament's organizing committee. And he said that the country has been unfairly treated since winning the hosting rights in 2010. Uh, openly gay footballer Josh Car uh, Cavallo, he said that he would be, quote-unquote, scared to play in Qatar due to the anti-LGBTQ laws. And Alcatar said that he would be welcomed into the country. He said in November 2021, he said, on the contrary, we welcome him, we welcome him here in the state of Qatar. We welcome him to come and to see even prior to the World Cup, nobody feels threatened here. Nobody feels unsafe. The notion that people don't feel safe here is untrue. I've said this before and I say this to you again. Everybody is welcome here. Everybody is welcome and everybody will feel safe here. Qatar is a tolerant country. It's a welcoming country. It's a hospitable country. He added, Qatar and the region are a lot more modest and Qatar and the region are a lot more conservative. And this is what we ask fans to respect. And we're sure that fans will respect that. We respect different cultures, and we expect other cultures to respect ours. Sounds pretty normal, doesn't it? Um, in this article I'm, I was, I'm reading from, it says, In June 2022, The Guardian questioned the Supreme Committee, which organized the World Cup and LGBTQ issues in Qatar, including protection and, and the carrying of rainbow flags. General reply to the paper said, Everyone will be welcome to Qatar in 2022, regardless of their race, background, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or nationality. We are a relatively conservative society. For example, public displays of affection are not a part of our culture. We believe in mutual respect, and so whilst everyone is welcome, what we expect in return is for everyone to respect our culture and traditions. When they say respect our culture and traditions, they do not mean respect the fact that we will jail homosexuals and criminalize them and criminalize the activity. That is not what they mean. What they mean is 
public displays of affection, even between a man and a woman, are not something you see in these countries. Let's take alcohol, for example. The world has wanted Qatar to bring alcohol and like lift their bans. I mean, in, in Brazil, the same thing. There were stadium bans on alcohol in, in being served in the grounds, and FIFA asked them to change that, right? Now, we're kind of asking for the Qataris to allow drunk people, which is something that you never see. In these countries, you can only actually buy alcohol in hotels. There are no liquor stores. There are no bars. So we're asking them to change the fabric of their society. This is a very small country. For the world to show up and say, hey, you're going to do things totally different because we're here now, is not respectful. Now, here's another thing. People have mentioned nobody asked questions of Russia on this. And it's a lot easier to bully Qatar into changing their policies and to changing their culture if the West wants to. It's a lot more difficult to tell Russia what to do. And no one did. Russia got the World Cup. They did everything they wanted to do to make sure it was the way they wanted it. They allowed people to drink in the streets for a month. And then in a lot of places, the rules went right back to the way they were before everyone showed up. The other thing is people respected the law in Russia. I watched a lot of people tiptoe anytime they saw police around because they just didn't want to end up in Russian jail. So they respected the rule of law there. Just recently, I saw this morning, and apparently just over the last couple of days, there was a British man who went to Qatar, an activist. I'm not going to say his name. I don't want to put anyone on blast. You can go and see the story if you want. But he went there and stood out in front of the museum with a sign that said that the Qatari rights towards homosexuals are inhumane. And look, I understand. You want to go, you want to protest in a country. He's protesting the World Cup. There's different groups that have said that they will boycott the World Cup. Fine. But I am, I have to say, this is a a really, really dangerous thing for people to do, to feel that it's okay to go to a country and to say, hey, you've got to change everything because there's going to be a football tournament being played here. The football tournament can be played. And what I think is that foreigners should go to a country, respect the laws, respect the culture, and learn from it, as opposed to saying, hey, I'm going to come. I should be able to do everything I do back home. And you get to see how that goes and why you want that to be part of your society. Because the reality is a lot of these countries, they do not want their countries to be Americanized. They do not want their countries to be Westernized. And at this current juncture, it kind of feels like it's being forced on them. When I saw that post uh, this morning about the man who the uh, protester who was there, he got arrested. He was detained and then let go. So there was nothing, he was not beaten, he was not, you know, chucked in a dark hole for weeks on end. No, he was detained, interrogated, and then they basically said, you can go. Yes, the eyes of the world are on Qatar, so they do not want to mess this kind of thing up and do something completely crazy and then have, you know, the world's journalism crews descending on them. But this also worries me is how, during the World Cup, are there going to be groups of people who decide that showing up in Qatar in order to just protest the country is something that is reasonable. Because are they doing that anywhere else? There's human rights abuses happening everywhere. I don't see, you know, people from, you know, the UK or the United States rolling up in Somalia and doing protests in front of their museums about human rights abuses happening. 
No, it's because people feel actually safe enough to go to Qatar to do this. And that's, that's the irony of it. If the guy felt safe enough to go to Qatar and do this and know that he would basically be able to come home, then clearly it's not as unsafe as he is basically trying to make it out to be. Do we wish that these that there is just an equality for people worldwide? That would be great. Yes. And hopefully we're moving in that nice and easy. But you cannot go into other countries and just enforce your beliefs and your cultures. It, it does not pan out well. So this is a space to watch. There might be things that happen during the World Cup, protests, different things that do not go over well. And I just hope that everyone respects everyone's boundaries and that people just stay in their lane. The last person who needs to stay in their lane is Jurgen Klopp. Okay. Jurgen Klopp basically jumped on a referee during the Manchester City-Liverpool game. And look, as a coach, the thing that drives me the most crazy is watching top, top level guys treat the referees the way they do because it does filter down through the game. And actually, what I was told is that there was uh, on the same day they there was sort of a, a large strike. A lot of the referees went on strike in the local uh, grassroots football in the area on the same day that Jurgen Klopp basically almost <laughs> commits assault on a referee. Uh, I thought I thought there was an irony there. And again, it, Jurgen Klopp, you've got to just be a coach. You know, you, uh, going and speaking on. Uh, the money that other clubs have and then getting in the face of referees, you just look like you have sour grapes. Now another group that needs to stay in their lane is Manchester City and to please not go and accuse Jurgen Klopp of xenophobia. I mean, that is completely, completely insane. That that one drives me nuts. Um, it's unfair. It's wrong. He didn't say anything xenophobic at all. He just said we can't compete with these nation states that just come in with tons of money. Didn't say anything about Arabs, didn't say anything about the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, didn't say anything about anybody. He just said, we can't compete with that kind of money and it's a little unfair. That's it. So uh, enough with the gaslighting and virtue signaling, that's completely ridiculous. And so you see all these things come together when you link it to, once again, the World Cup in Qatar. It's frustrating that people are coming out putting out their opinions on something that is genuinely not theirs to say. I think I've listened to on a lot of podcasts recently, people talking about what the human rights issues in Qatar are. And everyone is very happy to speak as if this country has got to change itself now or else we won't accept it. You just hear that tone from a lot of people. And I just think it's dangerous because this is a country that asked the citizens. They didn't ask for the World Cup. Okay, there was a committee that put together a bid, they had a lot of money, they bribed some people, and they got the World Cup to be brought to this tiny little country. Then they had to build an infrastructure, an entire infrastructure. And what did they do? They just tried to put it together as quickly as possible, got migrant workers, tried to cut some corners, and they got caught for that, which, as they should, if they're going to organize a worldwide event, you've got to do things correctly. But ask yourself, did the Qatari citizens ask for this? Are they excited for the world to come to their doorstep? Probably. But that doesn't mean they're excited for people to come in and try and whitewash their culture, change it, and tell them that they're doing things wrong. So, people, if you do go to the World Cup, just 
respect things. Please don't be out drunk in the streets. All right? That was fine in Moscow. Okay, it's not okay in Doha. It's just not going to be okay. So I just ask anyone who goes, respect the Qatari people. Learn something about their culture. And probably just enjoy being sober for a week or two if you're there. What's the worst? What's the worst that can happen? You don't lose anything, maybe, huh? You remember everything. Ah, That's not so bad. All right. That's going to have to do it for episode 121. Thanks so much for stopping by. Look, I, I think it's really important that we all look at all these stories that are coming and going right now because it's going to heat up over the next three weeks leading up to the World Cup. And I just ask anyone who listened to this right now, try and spread a message of tolerance and acceptance for you know all types of things and all types of people and that we don't need to flaunt every single part of our belief system in front of other people. We just don't need to do it. We can go ahead and learn from others. Ronaldo can learn from others. Willie, I don't know. Things are cyclical in football and life. Thanks so much for stopping by. I'm Sebastian North.